Maybe seated. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. We've been, we finished a series on the book of Revelation and Pastor Rob gave me the liberty to pick a text and as we are reading through the narrative of the ten plagues, I thought perhaps we could preach a sermon on the closing of, of these plagues, chapter 12. This text is often preached for the Lord's Supper, but the truths that are spoken here are to be in our minds and in our meditation every day. So, we, we chose this passage to preach it this morning. Please turn your Bibles to Exodus 12. We are going to read from verses 1 through 32. Exodus 12. This is the infallible word of God. Here, please. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of the months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, houses a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lamb at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintels of the houses in which they are at, in, in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat it, do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both men and beast. And on, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you. On the house is where you are. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, 
On the first day, you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of the unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go, select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a branch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that, it is, that is in the basin, and, though, and, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of, your, of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land, that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but he spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worship. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord. As you have said, take your flocks 
and your hurts as you have said. And be gone and bless me also. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord, what a God that you are. You are a just God, but you are merciful, a merciful God. For God, as we look to your word this morning, we long to learn more from you of your salvation, and we bow before you. Please, Lord, make this word find in our hearts a good land that bears fruit. May your spirit teach us this morning that we might be saved. In Jesus we pray. Amen. One of the best known stories of the Old Testament is perhaps this narrative, the Exodus from Egypt. Children know that just well. God's mighty acts showing his power as the only living God. But as we read this narrative, we might be tempted to look at it only to the judgment side, which is necessary part of it. We can't miss it, but it's not all of it. If we read it and see just judgment, we can end up seeing a, perhaps just a vengeful God, as did Martin Luther. Before he, he was converted, he saw in God only a vengeful heart, God, that could hardly be appeased. So Luther could never be sure whether he had done enough to avoid hell. But we can also look at this text and read it as it was all about being good and being bad. Well, the Egyptians were the villains, so God punish them. The Israelites were the victims. They were the good guys. So God helped them. But in both ways, we miss the gospel in this passage. And we learn from Jesus himself in Luke 24. He says that Moses and the prophets, that is the whole of the Old Testament, he speaks about him. So as we read the Old Testament, we should be aware that it's teaching something about the Lord Jesus. And that is my hope that this morning, with God's help, we will see the essential gospel truth in this passage. We have titled it, A Life for a Life. And we have divided it in three thoughts. First, God's indiscriminate sentence against sin. Second, salvation by substitutionary sacrifice. And third, salvation marks the beginning of a new life. Our first point is God's indiscriminate sentence against sin. First of all, we learn from this text things about the nature of sin and the nature of God's justice. We learn that God's judgment against sin honors no social distinction. Death will come to every house in Egypt, whether you are royalty, the son of Pharaoh, or you are 
a son of a slave in a dungeon. The Lord makes no distinction. Death will find every firstborn in the land. Notice also that the tenth plague did not automatically exclude the land of Goshen. We find that in some of the plagues, the land of Goshen was automatically spared, but not in the tenth plague. Judgment was coming to the house of the Israelites too. You could think that the people of the covenant would be exempt from judgment, but no. No one would automatically escape it. Being born in the Hebrew camp, perhaps to a very, to very devout Hebrew parents, would not automatically protect you from death that day. Verse 12 says, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn. In the land of Egypt. Both men and beast. All the firstborns. Are under that sentence. Israelites. And Egyptians. Royalties. And slaves. Rich and poor. It is important for us to understand from the beginning. As we have already mentioned. That the death of the firstborn. Was judgment. It was judgment. Was what was happening in Egypt that night was not random. It was not arbitrary because God does not exercise arbitrary judgment. The Egyptians shed blood, the blood of the Israelite children. God gives them blood to drink. They killed Israelite infants. God is going to kill their firstborn. But by performing this play, God was specially manifesting His hate against sin. Above all, He was speaking of His hate against sin. You see in verse 12, it teaches us, it says, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. It was against idolatry. Because we know that the idol has no real existence. Paul teaches us that in 1 Corinthians 8. An idol has no real ex existence. So it was against men's sin. Against idolatry. Against hardness of heart. And don't, don't think that the Israelites were not idolaters. It is the testimony of the Bible that while they were in Egypt, they worshipped idols as well. You find that information in Joshua 24, 14. If you look in Ezekiel 20, verses 7 through 9, you find that again. But we know just from the history of the Israelites... We know well what happens later. The golden calf. They were no different. The Israelites were no different. And all of this shows us 
that the problem of sin is universal. It is universal. As sons of Adam, we all invariably are alienated from God. We are alienated. The holy God must punish sin. Therefore, death penalty, this is a reality. Eternal condemnation is upon every sinner. No matter his status, no matter his nationality, all are under death sentence. This text teaches us how serious God takes sin. Even if we many times take it lightly. Even if the world says that people are basically good. The Bible teaches otherwise. We are sinners. And God judges sin. He is an impartial judge. We do live in a world that distinguishes people by social status. Being born in, in a wealthy family brings some privilege in society. Some people who are powerful commit crimes and they get away with it. But they will not get away from God's justice. God is a righteous ruler. He's a righteous ruler. But no one will escape even if they are in church. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand that rich and poor, people in the church and outside of the church, morally, we stand just the same before God. We are sinners. Being a member of the church does not bring automatic privileges before God. Being a covenant child, baptized, does not necessarily free you, not automatically free you from God's wrath, from His judgment. Salvation is not inherited. It's not inherited. And I hope that by now you, you begin to understand that this passage is speak to you as much as it spoke to the Israelites in those days. The Exodus is a paradigm of redemption. It speaks of redemption. The main deliverance in that day was not from the hands of Pharaoh. It was from God's hand. It was from His judgment against sin. But if the Israelites were as much sinners as the Egyptians... If sin is a universal problem as we recognize it, so how was it that the Israelites were spared? And for us, the question is, how is it that some people go to hell and some people go to heaven? And the answer is never to be found in ourselves. It is to be found in God alone. It is not that some are better than others. Salvation is exclusively based on God's gracious provision. Chapter 11, verse 7 is going to tell us that it was God Himself that made separation between Egyptians 
and Israelites. But how? Based on what? Our text is going to teach us that. Based on a substitutionary sacrifice. A life for a life. And no less. And this is our second point. Salvation by substitutionary sacrifice. That must be death. That is what justice demands. If God is going to show His mercy is not at the expense of His justice. Justice must be satisfied. The righteous God will not overlook sin. Brothers and sisters, we know that salvation is all of grace. But we must not think for a second that there was no cost behind it. It comes costly, costless, without a cost to you. But it was costly to God. Because in God's judicial system, only a life can pay for a life. Though that sentence threatened every house in the land of Egypt, God offered a way of escape. An animal, an animal should be taken in the place of the firstborn. The only way to stop death from coming was that someone else died. Someone else died. Someone else's blood has to be shed if there is to be sparing. Either the firstborn is going to die or the lamb. And God is very specific when He instructs the people about the acceptable substitute. Only a perfect life will satisfy God's justice. A lamb without blemish. Says verse 5. Perfect. But can an animal be a fit substitute for a human life? And we know from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10 is very specific about this. That no amount of blood of animals, of bulls and goats will ever, will ever suffice for the least of sin. It is impossible. And we do not need to be great theologians to find out, to understand that this lamb anticipates Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. The whole of the New Testament gives testimony to this truth. Jesus, 1 Peter 1 says, we read this morning, is the lamb without blemish, whose blood paid for our ransom, alive for our life. Jesus is referred to in the book of Revelation as the lamb of God. Well, the, the Old Testament teaches us that so that when Jesus comes, people will have no doubt John the Baptist had no doubt. He is the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. A precious life for a wretched life. What a wonder. What a wonder. And here we marvel. We marvel. Because who could say what 
mind could have ever imagined that this would be God's provision for your sin. The life of His Son, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the mystery of the cross. What, what Greek mythology could have ever anticipated this? What mind can, can grasp what is in here? We marvel, we wonder with Paul, all the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. God has a way to satisfy justice and to be gracious to sinners at the same time. Well, we were foolish if we ignore God's justice, but if all you see in God is a vengeful God, you are missing the gospel. You are missing the gospel. There is a message of grace here in this text. There is a message of love here in this text. Because sometimes some religious people have this extreme. Sometimes they can live thinking that God is out there just to strike us. The least of my sins, He's he's ready to strike. But there is a message of grace and love. In this text, a great encouragement to Christians. God loves and cares for those who are His children. If you are in Christ, you are God's beloved. You are God's beloved. When God said to Pharaoh to let His people go, in one instance, He uses these words. Let my son go. In God's eyes. We are his children. Let my son go, or else I'll take yours. Let my son go. And uh, I bring this because as Christians, when we look at ourselves, we see how unlovable we are. But God loved us while we were yet sinners. While we were yet sinners sinners but also there is a tendency today among theologians to question the doctrine of substitutionary atonement and this substitution speaks of the sweet exchange that happened on the cross the just for the unjust some wonder why the cross if God is a loving father why doesn't he simply forgive sins well Because justice must be satisfied. Justice must be satisfied. Think of that. Think of David. A man after God's heart. David David killed. David committed adultery. If you were Uriah's mother, brother, friend, would you have seen any justice if God just... Let that pass. Overlook those sins. But there was not for nothing. That forgiveness was not for nothing. There was a price, dear believer. There was a price for that 
It is at the heart of the gospel. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The lamb must die. And he did. And he did. And there is no salvation apart from his death. Well, perhaps you say, I know that already. I have heard this story many times. But how do I know this love is for me? How do I know that this great love is for me? In Christ's death is enough to provide salvation for the chief of sinners. But it is necessary for this historical reality that Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross. It is necessary that this historical reality becomes an experience in our lives. And that happens. That is appropriated by faith. That is appropriated by faith. The blood of the Lamb must be applied. It must be applied if there is to be salvation. It was not until the blood was applied on the doorposts of the houses that there was salvation for those who were inside. The blood must be applied. It was when God saw the blood that he withheld judgment. Well, to apply the blood, an Israelite had to count God faithful had to believe in his provision for sin, had to believe that if if they applied the blood, they would be protected. And this speaks of faith, doesn't it? Faith embraces God's provisional sacrifice. God's provisional sacrifice. When you believe and you count God faithful, that is the touch of the blood. For you. That is the touch of the blood for us. Without it, there is no salvation. There is salvation, but it's not yours. Without it, without faith, you cannot say of Christ, I am His, and He is mine. But our text also has an important lesson about faith. And we need to grasp that, or else we may of faith, a new kind of works. It is not faith that saves. It is not faith that saves. If you look at our text, saving faith here is trusting the blood. Saving faith here is trusting the blood. There are many people of other religions who have faith. Some of them put us to shame. And I believe that in that day in Egypt, there were some of the firstborns who had faith in the gods, who had faith in their position. They may have heard the words of of Moses, but did not believe. They slept as though the next morning they would be alive. They were not. There was no blood at their door. And here is a liberating truth. 
It is not faith that saves, but the object of faith. This text is all about the Lamb. It is all about His blood. God says in verse 13, When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you. Verse 23 confirms that. When He sees the blood on the lintel, on the in the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. And I say this is a liberating truth because many Christians who have already come to the Lord, who trust in Jesus alone for salvation, they struggle with assurance. And often enough, those people who have this struggle have that because they look for assurance inside. They look at themselves for assurance. They'll never find it that way. Even among Reformed circles, there is this tendency among people to question how much one believes to be saved. Have I believed enough? Have I believed enough? And it is still... It is still a demonstration of our tendency to look for worthiness inside of ourselves. And that keeps Christians of tender conscience in bondage. Saving faith looks outside of ourselves. It looks to the cross. It looks to the blood. It is not the amount of faith it is not the degree of faith. It is the efficacy of Jesus' sacrifice alone. Salvation is all is by faith alone. But it is in Christ alone. It is in Christ alone. Listen, please. Perhaps that night there were some among the Israelites, some firstborn especially, they were very nervous. Very nervous. They may have looked at their shortcomings. Their own lives, perhaps they were not the best sons. Perhaps they did not sleep that night waiting to see what's going on. But what happened was that the next morning, the one with weak faith was as much saved as the one with strong faith. Because the efficacy of saving faith is in the sacrifice of Jesus that satisfies God's justice. The lamb, the blood. You see, it is unique to the gospel. The gospel of the Lord Jesus, the true gospel, is not a maybe gospel. It is not come to Jesus and you may be saved. Maybe you'll be saved. It is come and you will be saved. As many as received him. As many as believed he made. He gave the right to become the sons of God. The son of God. The blood. The blood of Jesus. If you come, you will be saved. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who stand behind the blood. 
no condemnation. This whole na- narrative is centered in the Lamb. He was to be selected. Our Savior was set apart before the foundation of the world. He was to be without blemish. Jesus was spotless, sinless, a perfect substitute. He was without blemish. None of his blood, none of his bones were broken. He was killed. That was fulfilled in the crucifixion. Trust in the blood. Trust in the blood. Our third and last point. Salvation marks a new beginning. It is an important thing that we need to grasp as well because deliverance from death by blood sacrifice marked for the Israelites the beginning of a new life. Notice the emphasis of our text in verse 2. This month shall be for you the beginning of the months. Verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial. Verse 17. This very day I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And it's not part of what we read, we read but still in chapter 12, 51. On that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. In the ancient Near East, calendars were marked by the cycles of nature. So, the beginning of a new season marked the beginning of the year. Not for the people of God. That's not the big reference for them. The big reference for Israel is going to be their redemption. Redemption, grace, must mark the life of people of God. It must reorient our lives. It is a new life. We have died for the old self. We have no longer sin as our master. That is why it is incompatible to say that we are saved by grace, then we can do whatever we want. That is incompatible with saving grace. We're saving grace. When we receive Christ by faith, there is a radical change. A new beginning. A new beginning. A change of servitude. We still serve. But now we don't serve a tyrant. We serve our Redeemer. Our good works, our works are done by grace and out of thankfulness. We do not serve like in Egypt. We serve out of gratitude. Out of gratitude. Our lives is centered in grace and the Lamb. In the cross, in the blood. Believers, it is when we forget grace that we have all kinds of problems. That we become legalistic because we look for merit. Prayer, reading the Bible, they are all means of grace, but they are not based for our religion. Am I have I prayed enough today? So that God will bless my day. We become 
legalistics when we forget the grace that saves us. It is when we forget grace that we have a struggle with assurance. And it is especially when we forget that behind grace stands a sacrifice that we take sin to lightly. That we abuse grace. That we live a careless life. But redemption is to mark Christians in such a way. In such a way that they will hate sin. That they will love the Savior who gave their life for them. When I was a kid, I, I didn't understand much and I... I read this passage, and I, I, was, I was sad because I read about this lamb, this small lamb. And as kids, we, we love animals. And, and here is this little, little lamb, one year old, being killed when he had nothing to do with that. But when by faith one day, not only understanding covenant, typology, etc., but understanding by faith. That the Lamb was my Savior. That He died for my sins when He had no part in it. It was the first time when I came to abhor my sin. But unfortunately, with shame I confess that it is my tendency to forget this. And then I, I tend to become careless again. And this is why this passage is so precious. Because it, it reminds us of this reality. How it all began for me. This new life. And the price that was paid. This is why the Lord's Supper is so important. Isn't it? One of the reasons. Because it brings to mind. It invites us to bring to mind again this reality of the land. Of the blood of our redemption. We, we thank God for his word. We thank God for Jesus' sacrifice. And as we come to this text. We remember the old story. The old story that saved us. The story of the Savior. The story of his blood. Let, let us do as the Israelites did. When they found out about this redemption, they bowed down and they worshiped the Lamb. You know, the song of Revelation, at the end, in heaven, we'll be singing the song of the Lamb. Song of the Lamb. Let us pray. Oh, dear Father, how much we praise you. We can't praise you enough. For this great salvation. And we pray Lord. Please help us that this great salvation. This great redemption. Will mark our lives. Will mark the way we live. Our relationship. The way we work. The way we speak. And the way we worship. We ask you in Christ's name.